0: Life Audio. Hello, and welcome to Kynos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara,
1: and we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, on the day that this episode is to be released, it is Halloween. So, Happy Halloween from the past to all of our listeners. And uh, last week's episode, we actually, uh, it was a re-air from an episode back in 2020. We talked a little bit about Halloween and its history and how Christians should engage with it. But I wanted to uh, come back and touch on another Halloween-adjacent topic this week because there's this crazy thing that happens on our website. Uh, Every October, there's this one specific article on our website that starts getting a lot of traffic, kind of like the end of September and in the first weeks of October, and that article is titled, What Does the Bible Say About Ghosts? So I guess that makes sense. Like when people start putting up decorations in their yards of ghouls and ghosts and skeletons, I guess some of them get contemplative and they start wondering, uh, what do Christians think about this? Or what should Christians think about this? And then they Google it and then they happen to find us because we have good SEO on our website. Well done. And so they come to to us to uh, learn about what Christians should think about ghosts. But ghosts are actually like a big part of – American culture, they're a part of a lot of cultures, but in America, they're kind of part of our popular culture uh, in many ways. And according to one poll taken by Ispis in 2019, 49% of Americans believe in ghosts. So that's just 1% shy of half of the people living in America believe in ghosts. And I would guess that a sizable number of them are Christians, even just nominally. But I would imagine that there are a fair bit of uh, devout Christians in there as well who believe in ghosts. And in another poll, which was conducted by Gallup, uh, they found that while less than 50% of Americans belong to a religious congregation, 74% believe in the supernatural. So just to put that in perspective, if you are a person living in America, it's slightly more likely that you will believe in ghosts than you will believe in God, which is kind of a wild thing. So I thought we'd talk about that today. Uh, Are ghosts real? And if not, how do we account for reports of paranormal activity that make up so much of the mythos of our own culture, as well as in cultures around the world? So that's what I want to talk about today, but we'll dive into it in just a moment.
0: Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once.
1: So as we said, it is Halloween, and Halloween is for the ghosts, man. Even our sons were uh, talking about ghosts the other day.
0: Yes, they like to put blankets over their head and then shout out that they're a ghost. And then the other one pretends to be afraid of the ghost walking around in the room.
1: My favorite part is that it isn't even like white blankets. No, it's just any blanket. It's like a fuzzy brown blanket. Yeah.
0: And they literally are running into walls. Titus has ran into the brick wall and I mean, run, like not just bumped into it. He has full on run into a brick wall um, with his blanket over his head being a ghost.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's pretty funny. It's just what he does, but. It, that's just a microcosm of our society. We're right. We're cuckoo for cocoa puffs when it comes to <laughs> ghosts and ghouls.
0: That is exactly how I would have said it myself.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, but what does the Bible say about ghosts? Because I know that that's why you came here for the hard-hitting facts. And the answer, to this Bible says very little. In fact, I could only think of one instance, and it's this really bizarre story in First Samuel twenty-eight that we've mentioned, like several times on the podcast now, like an alarmingly large number of times on this podcast. We've mentioned it, but we've never really delved into it. And it's this account of when King Saul, he goes to the witches of Endor to summon the dead spirit of the prophet Samuel. And the reason that Saul did that was that uh, Samuel had been the prophet of Israel, and he had always told Saul, Uh, what to do whenever it came to uh, military endeavors, because he had the anointing of God and he could tell you, like, here's what you need to be doing in this situation. But the problem was that Saul didn't always listen to Samuel when Samuel would instruct him with God's instructions. And that's actually what ended up getting him rejected by God as Israel's king. Uh, And that's when God told David that he would be the next king. However, there was a considerable lapse of time between when God removed the anointing from Saul and gave it to David and when Saul actually died and David actually became king. And so you see in the narrative sort of the uh, moral unraveling of Saul over time. And so Saul, he would normally go to Samuel when he needed advice about the direction of his leadership, about uh, the military things that were happening. Uh, But Samuel had died at that point, and the Philistines, they were threatening Israel's territory. And so Saul wasn't really sure what to do, and so he went to these necromancers in this town called Endor, uh, which is different than the moon of Endor in Star Wars, but uh, it's cool that they have the same name. I just like I just immediately go to like if you're saying Endor, I'm I'm thinking about the you Battle of Endor in Return of the Jedi.
0: That is not what I think. I'm about thinking about Ewoks. Yeah. Right.
1: And such. There were no Ewoks, but there were people who claimed that they could speak to dead people right there. And so Saul, he actually had to go outside, like, Israel's normal territory to find one of these necromancers because they had been expelled. They had expelled all of the, you know, spiritual mediums uh, from the land because that's what God had told him to do. But Saul, he disguises himself, and he goes into one of these witches. And what's actually kind of funny about the story is that the witch, like, starts talking trash on Saul, not knowing that it's him uh, because she's mad that, like— Uh, he's kicked out all of the mediums and he's killed some and, you know, all those kinds of things. And um, eventually she finds out who he is, but he's like, no, please help me. Uh, But she summons the spirit uh, of Samuel or or what at least what Saul believes to be the spirit of Samuel. And it's this ghostly figure that comes forth. That's that's how it's translated as a ghostly figure. And what happens next is actually also still kind of funny because this spirit emerges and Samuel says to Saul, what are you bothering me for?
0: <laughs>
1: and Saul's like, the Philistines are coming. We need help. And Sammy's like, well, what are you coming to me for? I already told you that you lost the anointing. And, you know, now the Philistines are going to come and they're going to take your lunch money from you. And there's nothing that I'm going to do that's going to help you. And then he says something that's pretty chilling. Uh, he tells Saul that, you know, the Philistines are going to defeat him and his army. And then he says, your sons are going to join me. In death. And um, then he disappears. And that's eventually what happens. Saul and his sons are killed in uh, the battle, not of Endor, but in a battle against the Philistines. And that's how David comes to power and becomes Israel's new king. So, first of all, uh, what do we even make of this story? Uh, was that really Samuel? Or was it some kind of demonic presence, an angel, just some kind of aberration, sleight of hand? What was it and what is happening in this story?
0: I love how you always ask me the easiest questions, because this is definitely one of those things that theologians are debating on in terms of what is actually happening here. Is this something that um, God is in the works of, of bringing um, the voice of the dead to light, right? Or is this just... Um, a demon pretending to be a voice from the dead. And I don't think I have a like set answer on what exactly is happening here. But um, what we do know is in relation to ghosts, as you look at like New Testament, which we'll get into that, right? Talking about the idea of being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So is there an in-between state that we should be concerned about? And obviously you look at this story in the Old Testament and you think, yes, of course, this supports that, right? But uh, not necessarily. So there can be other things happening here. Like I had read a couple of theologians that had just said, this is the enemy disguising demons as the voice from the dead.
1: What's interesting about it, though, is that Samuel gives a true prophecy, though like he he prophesies the future of the judgment that God has rendered unto Saul, and then that judgment comes to pass, which is interesting,
0: right. So that's where I mean, you have some that say it's the enemy, you have some that say it's God. um can God bring back voices from the dead? Yes,
1: he of can. Course. He can. But well, and would let's he do say, it in
0: a way that is prophesying forth the future? Certainly.
1: Yeah, I would certainly say that it's probably not any kind of angelic being that's working directly on behalf of God because it's not God's bag to be deceptive mm, in terms of So like of in like, terms
0: like, of in impersonating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a God thing to do.
0: That's fair. Yeah. That's a good um, way to view it.
1: But it could have been some other spiritual presence, demonic force, something like that, that was operating under its own purposes, I suppose, or just somehow had embodied what this, you know, necromancer had wanted it to embody. But then, in a larger sense of God's sovereignty, God is in- directing working? that indirectly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Which is like a whole other conversation of like how do you understand God's sovereignty in kind of the outworking of you know the minute things of the world and human interactions and all those kinds of things, Um, but it is interesting that that there is a true prophecy of judgment, and you know maybe it's just that if it was some kind of uh, demonic presence that wasn't really Samuel, uh, then. The the demons already know the judgments of God. You know what I mean. Like so, maybe he could just like mm-hmm. fulfill that role, or okay. maybe it was Samuel. Maybe there was some sense in which, um, he did raise him from what the Hebrews would call Sheol or the pit or the the realm of the dead. But there is some kind of uh, connection with um, Samuel's consciousness that is achieved here. But it's just it's just kind of wild because we don't get very much of that context. And it kind of just gives it to us at face value kind of from Saul's perspective in that he believed and had no reason to doubt that he was actually talking to Samuel. And there's no explicit correction of that belief in the text itself. So it very well could have been Samuel or It could just be that whoever is writing the book of Samuel, uh, that that reality or non-reality was immaterial to uh, advancing the narrative and getting that point uh, across. And so, um, yeah, it could be a lot of things. I tend to um, err on the side of the author was just being nonspecific because it wasn't relevant to the, the theological narrative that they were trying to unfold. Um, and it's just one of those old Testament passages that kind of causes us to scratch our head. I think of like Elisha, uh, and, uh, prophesying that bears would attack, uh, the kids who made fun of him because he was bald. There's all kinds of weird stories in the old Testament in particular. This one is just, you know, uh, relevant to our conversation here because it does touch on this kind of strange ghostly thing that we don't ever really see anywhere else. I was trying to well, think of any other narrative where we get something like this right? and I can't think of one.
0: No. And that's one of the important elements to this discussion is as you look throughout scripture and try and find um, other stories or narratives or even aspects of scripture that speak on this like we just don't have a lot and so this particular uh narrative within the old testament is not normative of what we're reading and it doesn't give us a lot in terms of how we can like systematically lay out here is the biblical view on ghosts because we have uh x number of stories and passages that speak to it
1: Yeah, and the other thing is that this is happening in the context of Saul's moral decline and in many ways his descent into madness because he was afflicted by evil spirits uh, as he had lost the anointing uh, from God. And really it kind of shows like this accursed place that he finds himself in, that he's going to find these spiritualists – that um, he had previously understood to be so dangerous and had expelled them from uh, the land where he had control, and now he's going to them for this kind of dark spiritual magic. And so there's that element of that as well that is instructive that King Saul, the great king of Israel, when we see him at his absolute darkest and most accursed moment, it's when he's trying to commune with a ghost. And so Mm -hmm. there's something in the story there that is kind of instructive for us of like how we should be oriented towards this kind of from the start.
0: Yeah, because this is a, like you said, this is a a dark moment for him and it's showing that he is no longer um, walking in obedience to the Lord. It's actually an unraveling of him and his, him separating himself from the Lord. So I think that moves that propels this narrative forward as he's kind of now in this realm of seeking mediums and talking to people on the other side
1: yeah yeah um there are so this is the only time we see a ghost Um, And what's notable, as we said, about this story is that this is the only time this kind of thing happens. But there are relevant passages of Scripture and narratives in the New Testament in particular that I'd like to explore as it relates to this conversation. But we'll dive into that in just a moment. So when we look at the New Testament, we don't have stories of people coming back from the dead to talk to people or even people trying to seek that out. That's just not part of the the New Testament narrative. But what we do see, particularly uh, in Jesus's ministry and also in the ministry of the apostles, but I think especially in Jesus's ministry, uh, what we do see are demonic spirits that are active and present in the world. And they're like out and about and doing stuff all the time. They're causing, you know, Illnesses and ailments and psychological disorders and they're just wreaking all kinds of havoc. And we don't actually know a lot about them, like their existence, you know, the metaphysics of demonology. Um, although there there's there's a lot of rich tradition uh, in uh Christian traditions that has sprung up around this, but a lot of it is like extra biblical and it isn't really revealed in the New Testament that we have. We just know that they're kind of these heavenly or you might call angelic beings, they're spiritual beings. Uh, that are living in rebellion to God, and they're ultimately going to be judged and damned. And uh, kind of a signal of that judgment is Jesus' own presence. So when you go into the Gospel accounts, what you see is Jesus showing his authority— over uh, these demons by casting them out. And so that's kind of a theme is that you see Jesus' spiritual authority over all things, including these immaterial spirits. And, and you see that as he's casting them out and they can't do anything without his say so. Uh, but none of them are human souls. They they are these heavenly beings. They were created at some point. We don't know a lot about, uh, kind of yeah, get as again their their metaphysics or whatever it might be. We just know that they are spiritual beings living in, uh, rebellion to God. That they will be judged, and the sign of that judgment is that they are uh, uh, unwillingly being forced to submit to the authority of Jesus as He tells them what to do. Uh, but they're not human souls. When well, we're talking about human souls, um. Really, the long and the short of it is when you die, you're kind of out of the game when it comes to earthly affairs. Like, That's you are you're down, for you're on down. the bench, you know? <laughs> you're. You're not an active participant. Uh, Like Paul says, and you mentioned this earlier, Tamara, in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, 8, it says that for Christians to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know that there's going to be a coming resurrection when we will receive uh, new bodies uh, that are eternal and incorruptible. And the sign of Jesus' resurrection and his resurrection body are the the first fruits of that, it says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. So we will get new physical incorruptible bodies. So we won't be disembodied souls forever, but we will be disembodied souls for a period of time until the final judgment and the resurrection and all of that stuff. So between now and then, there are some differences of opinion on how conscious you will be uh, while you are awaiting your new body. If you're a follower of Jesus, like some theologians, they think that you are fully awake, you are present, you're with Jesus, you're with other believers, you're with your granny, you're with your dog, and like you're all there, but you don't have bodies yet, and you're waiting for that uh, coming resurrection, and there are other theologians that think that once you you die and you're in uh, – in the care of Christ, you go into what they call soul sleep. Right. And this is kind of based on the fact that Paul uses this euphemism of falling asleep to refer to death. So it's the idea that when you close your eyes for the last time on earth, the next time that you open them, you'll do so with a resurrected body. Uh, so there's some difference of opinion there, but in any event, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are protected by Jesus. You are in the presence of Jesus and you're kind of, you're in a different realm uh then, here, and you whether you're awake or not you you have very little concern for what's happening here,
0: right, and you're not like floating around in between as you're awaiting your new resurrected body, right, like it, scripture is clear there's not this in between state in terms of in between the world and in between heaven and your existing like you can see what's happening in the world, but Uh, And try and find ways to participate in that, even though you're not really in it, Uh, which is how we view ghosts, right? Mm -hmm. Is they are souls that are floating around. We can't see them, but they're still actively participating in our world somehow. Um, And oftentimes they're scaring us. They're not being like nice and helpful, right? They're being... Terrifying, right? There, um, there's
1: no sense in which no- heaven meets earth like a sloppy white kiss. <laughs> other than in the person of Jesus, that's why it's so monumental. Mm-hmm. Yes, that Jesus came from heaven to incarnate, right? To be a person, yeah. or a, a man
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: living in the first century. Exactly. That that's the only time that that happens. That there is there is such a transference from mm-hmm. uh, a, a spiritual being to a physical being uh, on earth.
0: Right, and Jesus is the only one who did that. We don't right. have everybody else. Like, if your, you know, grandma passed away, she's not floating in this in between state. Um, as believers, then grandma would be present with the Lord. And now, again, like you said, there's, um, differing opinions on how that actually looks. Um, whether it's this soul sleep or it's you know, a a soul actively aware in heaven.
1: Right. And this is true also of those who die without Christ. Because you think of ghosts, you think of like an accursed soul that is right. wandering the hallways of this Trying to you know, find Victorian house in or New Orleans. Yeah. And, and so when it comes to those who die, apart from a saving relationship with Christ, Jesus in his own teaching seemed to indicate that uh, they go to a place of conscious uh, discomfort, uh, to say the least. We see this um, perhaps most explicitly with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in the story, the rich man, he's unjust. And so when he dies, he goes to this place of judgment and discomfort. And he tries to get uh, Abraham, like Father Abraham had many sons, uh, tried to get Abraham to talk to his friends and family and like warn about this coming judgment. But Abraham tells the rich man, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. Why don't they listen to them? And so since this is a parable, it's a little bit hard to know what to take literally uh, and how much of it to take figuratively. Um, but we what we do know is that those who die apart from Christ also go to an intermediary place uh, upon death until the final judgment when we're all raised up and brought to account, and those who are apart from Christ, uh, they receive their full and final uh, judgment and punishment, and that's what we call hell. And um, there's a few different views on what uh, hell will look like, um, we've talked about that in the past. We'll link to some of that in the show notes. Um, and you can, if you have questions about that, uh, we other have other resources for that as well, but the upshot of all of this, uh, for our purposes here is that all of this points to the fact that once you're dead, you're not roaming the earth, waiting to pass over to the other side. You have already passed over to the other side and you're awaiting the final judgment, whether for good or for ill. Um, but you have no access to this realm anymore. Your key card has been deactivated, and you're not over here anymore. You're either here or you're there. And this is congruent with uh, going back to the Old Testament. It, it's, go- it's congruent with Old Testament theology, um, which doesn't really seem to delve too much into what you might call the afterlife, um, but they referred to the place of death as Sheol, the pit, Uh, which isn't really defined super well or systematically throughout the Old Testament. But there's kind of like this sense of nothingness and just being in the realm of the dead. Uh, But again, other than that one really weird story with Samuel, uh, no one is coming back. And that's kind of the whole metaphor, Um, especially like just they're not coming back in any kind of a conscious way. Like they're dead, they're gone. That's just kind of the way uh, the Bible presents life and death. Uh, that death is final, and uh, the good news of Jesus is that only through Jesus is death not final. And so um, there isn't like this cathartic, you know, experience waiting to happen, like we see in the movies where we set the souls free. The souls are gone, and they're either with Jesus or they're not. And so they're not they're not coming to talk to us. Um, but that that doesn't um, explain the fact that a lot of people not only believe in ghosts but have claimed to have experiences uh with ghosts and the paranormal. So Tamara, when people encounter the paranormal or the so-called paranormal, we know that they aren't encountering human souls. Right. Um but what are they encountering?
0: So there is the Bible's clear about there being a spiritual realm. Um in in terms of like you can't literally see it in front of you. Sure, maybe it it takes on some forms that you can tangibly see, but um they're are angels and there are demons, and they are existing, coexisting in some ways around us. Um, and so from my readings of scripture, it does seem to be clear that there are opportunities where those worlds kind of cross over. Um, but again, like you said, they're not human souls. And so uh, I think when it comes to people encountering paranormal activity, um, it could very well be uh, some kind of engagement or encounter with either angels or demons. Um, but I do think probably more often than that happening it's um, like something we've become to believe in our minds and we start to see things uh, and that doesn't mean you're crazy like I know I do it all the time <laughs> like if you already have this um, like belief in your in in the way that you live that these kinds of things are existing around you it's a whole lot easier to see them right right
1: and to a large extent we've been programmed yes like like literally like i was um because ghost stories are like such a huge part of our culture from like you know the disney channel all the way up to like horror films that you see on hbo like there's there's so much of this and in fact did you know that E uh the reality tv show uh ghost hunters that that's still going on
0: like new episodes? Yes. Oh, it started gosh. in no, I didn't 2004
1: yeah. and has 16 seasons They really and is still actively making yeah. episodes and they go around with like machinery and like special cameras and all kinds of stuff. And they're trying to track the movement of ghosts. And so like people genuinely believe this stuff because like the stories that we tell each other mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again, without any kind of sense of, you know, whether it's real or not real, uh, they will start to believe that they're real in some yes. sense after a while. So like to what measure are we just like really under the power of suggestion uh as opposed to like we're encountering, you know, spiritual forces of darkness. Um I think when the both. chair fell over in the living room in the right. middle of the night so, and no one touched it.
0: Uh I know that even it's probably in Romans, what that talks about our real enemy is not one another. It's actually, like, the one who rules the air. It's it's Satan and his demons. So there is a real enemy out there. Um, and it's easy, depending on what side of, you know, what church you're tied to, to either really play into that and think highly of it and think there are demons around your corner. And then if you're on a different side of, you know, your... Um, denomination or theological standing you tend to err on the side that that isn't really around us and everything is just in your mind so there is an in-between those two extremes uh, demons and <laughs> satan are real like the bible is clear about that angels are real and that is who our enemy is the demons right um now, insofar as how they're actively engaging with us, I mean, I think we said this on a podcast before that if you have the, <laughs> the greatest enemy to Christ trying to actively attack you, then like what is happening? Uh, because he's not omnipresent, right? So he's not everywhere. He can't be uh, focusing in on everybody at one time. Right. Like,
1: but he does have he, legions of friends. He
0: certainly does. But is it just to spook you? Is that his goal?
1: Right just his to make you goal scared isn't of the dark. just to
0: make you afraid of the dark like his goal is if you are actively advancing the kingdom of God, then he's gonna try and stop that as best he can. so uh he's not just trying to lurk in the dark while you're trying to go to the bathroom at night and spook you um like his his agenda is far bigger than just making people a little bit scared at night um so I think when it comes to those types of things, uh, a lot of that is probably more power of suggestion, but I don't want to downplay the fact that the enemy is real and he is actively working against the kingdom of God. And so, as people who are following Christ and we're actively trying to uh, expand the kingdom of God, there can be some real work of the enemy happening. And so, we shouldn't just like, brush that aside every time. But again, I just don't think he's trying to spook you as you're going pee in the middle of the night.
1: Right. Yeah, his plans are much They're, they're more intricate than yeah.
0: that. Yeah. And so like when for example our son Silas he's having more and more nightmares. Oftentimes he wakes up and he tells me, you know, that he's something's in his room, somebody's in his room, he saw something. And oftentimes I can think what did we let him watch a few hours before bedtime? Yeah. Most of the time, he was watching. I mean, watching- Texas Chainsaw
1: Massacre. I regret. Yeah, him watch that.
0: (laughs) But even just little, you know, like things on YouTube that have, you know, ghosts jumping around and they're singing and it feels like a really cute thing. But little do I know that's actively playing into his imagination and into his mind. So then when it comes to him waking up in the middle of the night, he's now seeing things. right? And of course, they're not there because we walk into his room and there's nothing there. And uh, so do I think in those moments a demon is attacking my child? No, I think it's the fact that Um, like you said, the power of suggestion, the power of um, what we're letting ourselves watch and view. And I'm not saying like, don't let your kids watch the, you know, Halloween Mickey Mouse show. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But just be mindful of the way that it affects your mind and for children, their dreams. Yeah.
1: So to summarize what, what you said, if you're seeing ghosts, one, you're either demon afflicted or two, you have a very active imagination.
0: I think you put it in a very simple manner, but that downplays, because I get scared. That's what I heard you say. No, because I get scared a lot. I'm like, what was that? Did you hear that? And sometimes, you know, you can really rationalize how that happened, but sometimes I'm not sure I know how to rationalize what happened, but I also know that what I believe in Scripture is true, and there are not ghosts existing around me, trying to spook me.
1: Right. Yeah. And I tend to... If you have enough information, there's almost always... Uh, some kind of naturalistic explanation for what has occurred. Uh, I don't that know doesn't, about that. That doesn't negate that there's also a spiritual explanation. Right. But I think sometimes those things even exist simultaneously and mm-hmm. aren't always opposed to one another. Yeah. Um. I think we see that even just throughout scripture and the sovereignty of God and unfolding uh, the events of human history, that there is a lot of, you know, events that happen that seem kind of inevitable from a naturalistic perspective, but are also God ordained. And so I think there's just, there's a tension there um, that they aren't necessarily opposed to one another in every single situation. What's interesting to me about this whole conversation around ghosts is that I think christians believe in ghosts sometimes without even fully explicitly realizing that they do and that kind of comes out in tangential ways particularly when they're trying to you know provide comfort for someone who has lost a loved one and so they say things like you know your your grandma's looking down on you and smiling and she is so proud of you when she sees you um but if we have this understanding that like once they're gone, they're gone and they're with Jesus or they're, they're not with Jesus and hopefully they are with Jesus. Um how do we respond to that kind of assumption? Uh do we address that? Like how do how do we approach that on a theological level, but also on a pastoral level?
0: Right. So you have to be sensitive in the way that you approach this because oftentimes if someone is re- hearing that or it's being spoken to them or they're speaking it over somebody else there's grief involved and there's pain involved and somebody probably just lost somebody Uh, so I think coming in and saying like that's theologically inaccurate is not the best So well actually
1: that is not theologically appropriate in this situation
0: right so trying to you know pull out your like theological card is not the best situation Uh, as someone who lost you know, I lost my mom when I was 16. And over the years, I can't tell you how many big life moments have happened, where people tell me that they say, wow, your mom is so proud of you right now. She's looking down on you. And she's just so proud of Like who you've become as a mother or, you know, this accomplishment or that thing in your life or how you handled that. So I even still to this day have people tell me, and they're Christians that tell me my mom is looking down on me and she's so proud of me. Yeah. Um, And it's not like, I, I
1: hope not that she's not looking down on me, watching me struggle through life when she could be hanging out with Jesus.
0: Yeah. So that from a theological perspective, not only is, you know, the, the believer, If they're absent with their body, they're present with the Lord. But we also understand that in heaven, there's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no tears because you are in the presence of your Savior. And with that in mind, knowing the love that for sure a mother has, um, obviously other family members, but just speaking from this relational point of view, if I had passed away and was looking down and watching my kids struggle, how would that not bring me pain? Right. Like, would you just be so overwhelmed by the presence of the Lord that you see your kid, you know, like in pure survival mode and you're like, that's all right. Keep going. Like I'm here with Jesus. Like, you like you just, dead yeah. Like you just know that um, based on what we are given in scripture, um, there isn't that pain and suffering in heaven. And to look down and see your loved ones, Like struggling and really going through the thick of it, how are you um, exempt from pain? Right. Mm -hmm. So, then therefore, that means they can't see you. They're not looking down on you. They are with their savior, which is so much better than them like watching over you and guarding you and, you know, protecting you because they don't have that power. Jesus does like that's who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. And so you don't actually need your loved ones looking down on you and being proud of you because you already have Christ who is um, like with you, walking through it with you, protecting you and all of those things.
1: Mm -hmm. I think when I hear someone say something like that, it's emblematic of me, not of something I need to do in that moment um, because pastorally it's, you know, as we said, kind of a bad choice to, bring up theology at a funeral, um, when you, that's not really the time. Uh, but I think it is indicative of the fact that maybe we haven't like discipled our people enough in terms of just the theology around, you know, life and death and things like that. And there is, you know, a lot of uncertainty there. We have a lot of misconceptions, even just among devout evangelicals about heaven. Um, we have a lot of, you know, interesting theories, uh, dispensational theories about the end times that float around and like we we get you know caught up in so much of that like oh what's happening in the middle east and the red heifers and you know the blood moons and like all these kinds of things that you know we tend to fixate on that they were like majoring in the minors mm. uh, particularly when you think right. about just the very narrow stream of dispensationalism within the broader christian you know teachings um, that we're really missing the, the force for the trees uh, on the things that are kind of the big chunks. Like, I don't even know how old I was when I learned that we were going to be resurrected to physical bodies. No one ever taught me that growing up about mm. heaven. I just had this kind of ethereal understanding that you of would
0: forever just be a dancing soul. Yeah.
1: in the clouds, kind of a, a conception of heaven, which is not anywhere found in scripture no um it's very explicit about the resurrection of our physical bodies and so that's just indicative that uh, of i think a lack of theologizing in the church and really kind of giving uh our people a tangible hope that i think is better than uh, my loved one looking down on me like that's not well, my hope my yeah. my hope is that we uh are um in death and through the resurrection of Jesus and through our own resurrection, looking forward to a restored uh, society and a restored world uh, where everything is operating the way it should. And the pain of death is indicative of the fact that it's not operating the way that it should. Um, but even in the midst of that, that person is safe with Jesus. And then I think related to that is the fact that we have a, a lot of like near-death stories. Um, In evangelicalism, there's kind of a subset of us that are really into these stories where people say they have been to either heaven or hell uh, and they've come back and then like they write a book or there's a movie made out of it. And, you know, the ones that are most uh, popular are maybe like heaven is for real or 90 minutes in heaven. And then there's also 23 minutes in hell, which, you know, is better that it's shorter than 90 minutes. Um, And so these are like books and stories and um, movies that come out. Um, what is your take on those kinds of things as it relates to this whole, like passing over to the other side and coming back and all those kinds of things?
0: Well, first, a a lot of people who end up telling these stories, um, later on recant their telling of the story and say, I'm sorry, that actually didn't happen. It was like made up or I don't know. I don't think
1: people made them up.
0: Well, I was going to say, or they I think, were like, in when weird... you're dying,
1: your right. neurons are firing and electricity all throughout your yes. brain because you're just trying to fight for your life. And then your consciousness in your mind tries to make sense of all of those neurons firing. And you just get some really interesting kind of whatever was latent in your subconscious right. kind of gets brought to the fore. And you have some kind of experience that was a real experience. But was it an experience of your soul moving on somewhere else, or was this all just kind of happening within mm-hmm. the neurochemistry of your brain and a lot of stuff we don't understand about consciousness?
0: Right. Um, yes. Thank you. So I was going to say, or there was other things happening in the midst of the process of dying, but you you jumped on that. So thank you for clarifying um, instead of me offending people and saying everything is made up. Um, yeah. So, Obviously, what you said, but as we're trying to uh, look back on scripture and see how do we view this from what we can see in scripture, I think we can't even tether ourselves back to that same verse of "to be absent from the body is be present with the Lord." So, if you are absent from the body and in heaven, then you're present with the Lord. Um, and so, we don't see this picture of like Jesus then sending you back into your body. Um, And so, again, in the same way, there's not like this in-between state. There's not an in-between state in the process of dying either. And so certainly there can be other things happening. And maybe there are like some spiritual elements that are happening. Um, But to then exist within heaven for 90 minutes and then Jesus says, great, um, you're going back to your body now. Like that just doesn't seem true within the whole biblical narrative that we have of, what heaven actually is and the whole point of heaven is to be present with christ and uh we can talk about like even the misinterpretations of what heaven is and how oftentimes we're just really excited to get like to the golden streets and the mansion that we get to live in but that's not actually what heaven's about heaven's about jesus and being present with him and um the whole like beauty of, of all of that. Um. yeah, and so we just don't see within scripture this understanding that you would get to experience that for a set amount of time, and then you get sent back into your body.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that my problem isn't so much that that's an impossibility, because if that's what God wanted to do, he could do that. Um, I think uh, where my concern is, is that a lot of the times the descriptions of heaven, I think in one of the accounts, it might have been 90 minutes in heaven um where the kid came back and he described the holy spirit as kind of blue like that was his description of the holy spirit hmm. and um do you know just a lot of like details and things and I'm like it's not just like oh that that's not what i expected it's like hmm this actually doesn't seem congruent with the overall emphasis and and thrust of what uh the scriptures tell us about um being in god's presence uh because we do have accounts of Uh, Not people dying, but we have uh, prophetic visions of uh, whether it was the Apostle John, whether it was uh, Daniel, of like people being like in the presence of divine glory and that having a very specific kind of tenor to it um, that I think is absent or incongruent with a lot of these narratives that – Uh, are told by these folks who said, you know, I went to heaven and came back and here's my description of it. I'm like, "Hmm, are we reading the same Bible or did maybe you just have like a really harrowing experience where you almost died and then you had some like really kind of bizarre dreams because your brain goes haywire Mm. uh, when it thinks it's the the lights are turning out.
0: Yeah, I think that's another really important. Element is even as we're trying to weigh out, did this really happen? Obviously, then connecting um, that experience back to what we see in scripture. And anytime you have um, people in the Bible seeing angels, they are terrified and they fall on their face. Um, As well as when you think about Jesus in his glorified body, um, there's like the fear and awe related to it and not just um like I got to see Jesus and it was really cool and it was really comforting and it was so encouraging. Like there there's more weight to that than oftentimes what we read in these stories.
1: Right. Yeah. And so I think not to discount the genuineness of someone's uh, spiritual experience um but um, I would maybe want to dispute the category in which we put that spiritual experience in that it was an experience that you had um, but is not indicative of the eternal realities of the heavenly realm, if that makes sense. Yeah. Where I think there maybe there's a place for those types of things or those stories to be told, but the framing of them is not like, I'm telling you this because this is what heaven is like. It's like, I'm telling you this because I had this really a profound moment of, cl- like, spiritual clarity uh and and this is how it showed up for me and then i want to bring that clarity back to you because jesus is our only salvation and i came really close to death and my only comfort is jesus right and so like i think you can frame it in such a way mm-hmm. without saying like and, and in a totalizing way and this is what heaven is like which i think it you know when it it's gets sensationalized like that yeah we get some really bad interpretations yeah. and perpetuate pre-existing bad interpretations mm. based on poor theology of what heaven is, what it's about, what its main emph- emphasis is and kind of the shape of it and all those things. I think, yeah, we just kind of, we, we heap bad theology on top of bad theology um, because someone had a very real experience and we don't want to question uh, the validity of that. right? But I mean, here, here we hear are that questioning person, the validity of well, it. So but there you here,
0: go. You can hear that person and listen to them, but I, there's a difference between hearing somebody's experience and publishing a book on it or watching a movie on it. right like yeah that that's a little bit different.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Well, when it comes to what could be referred to as the afterlife as you've heard us talk about, uh, there's certainly a lot that we don't know. Um, uh, none of us has ever been there. Uh, none of us has ever died and come back except for those people that wrote the books. Um, And even then, we have questions for them that are unanswerable. I mean, even when uh, Jesus rose from the dead, at least in the words that we have that are recorded in scripture, he doesn't even spend very much time talking about like what he was up to over the weekend. Uh, Like he spends most of his time talking about resurrection life and the mission to see that life birthed in people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And so in a certain sense, like I suppose that should probably be our focus too, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong or bad to have questions. Um, I think we just need to realize that there aren't very many great answers to those questions, and that's okay too. Uh, but I think ultimately what we can take comfort in is that if you belong to Jesus, no matter what happens, it's all going to be all right.